Open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Daniel. And today we are launching uh, another series on the book of Daniel. And uh, this is called the first part of it, Becoming Cultural Exiles. Becoming Cultural Exiles. Open up Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, I want to share with you uh, the principle of slow Fade. The principle of slow fade is basically this. It's an unspoken transition into a new reality. It's something that usually happens while you're not totally paying attention. And then before you know it, your children's shoes are way bigger than their feet, right? Their pants um, turn into capris. You know that experience? Uh, for me, this is deeply personal because um, I, I knew that maybe I was eating a bit more food. I knew that Maybe there was an article of clothing or two that wasn't fitting like it used to, but then you step on the scale and you realize you're like, I don't know, 30 pounds fatter than you actually are. You know, that experience. Uh, it's called slow fade. It happens when you're not paying attention. In fact, this is a term in the Urban Dictionary that um, is used to describe um, young men who, when they want to break up with a girl, rather than having the DTR, do you know what the DTR is? The define the relationship talk, you know, that thing. Um, rather than having the define the relationship talk, the DTR on the way out, they start talking to their girlfriend less and less and less and less until one day they just stop calling. And then the girl calls and says, why aren't you talking to me? And then the guy's like, why are you so needy? Lay off, right? That's called the slow fade, okay? Um, weak men do that. By the way, if you're dating a guy who does that, don't, he's a terrible human being, so just let him go. Um, if you have done that, you call that girl back and you apologize. Can I get an amen, ladies? Amen. Um, the church, in the same way, has been on a slow fade. The church has been on a slow fade into what we call cultural exile. The church has been on a slow fade on its way to cultural exile. So let's first answer the question, who are exiles? Exiles are people without a homeland. I'll give you a few categories. You have immigrants who have left their homeland, like Pastor Greg. You have refugees who have been displaced or they are fleeing their homeland. Think of Assyria and much of what's happened in aspects and parts of Africa. You have slaves who are taken by force from their homeland against their will. Uh, Slaves is what is going to happen to the nation of Israel in the story of Daniel. But there is a a fourth category of exiles that scripture speaks to, and it is Christians. And it is a group of people waiting for our homeland. A group of people who are not yet home, who are not yet surrounded in a culture that shares our values, our attitudes, our belief, our systems, our God, our worship. And we are waiting for the day when we actually arrive in our homeland. Hebrews 11 calls us exiles and strangers or exiles and immigrants on the earth. And so we get to this issue of cultural exile. And cultural exile is when the church subtly, slowly goes through a transition and finds itself in a brand new reality. And cultural exile is when the church goes from, first of all, majority to minority. Now, whether or not it was the minority or majority or not, the church felt like it was in control. The church felt like it had the control of the cultural pulse. It felt like it had control of much of what was happening in America. Uh, But what happened over the last, we'll say, 50 years, but especially the last one to five years, 
especially the last two years, it's almost like somebody has taken a bunch of Christians, shook them up, and they found themselves in a brand new world, and they didn't even see it coming. Because they went from being the cultural majority to the cultural minority, and we're becoming cultural exiles. That's one aspect of this. Number two, the church, Christians, have gone from well-respected to disrespected. That it used to be an admirable thing in the public square to be a follower of Jesus, and now it is not a respectable thing. It is seen as a liability. Uh, In fact, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, uh, Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, somebody would look at a Christian and say, you're waiting to have sex before you're married. You value purity. Man, I really respect that. I could never do that. Now the conversation goes like this. Your views on sexuality are oppressive and bigoted, and I don't feel safe around this conversation. You are a threat to me. Uh, You need to leave. And all of a sudden, Christians are sitting here, and they're like, how did I find myself in this place? This isn't the country I thought I knew. How did I go from the majority to the minority? How did I go from being well-respected to disrespected. And then finally, the third aspect of this is that Christians have gone from the cultural center to the cultural fringe. We are no longer the influencers. We're not even being considered is what it feels like. Why? Because we're irrelevant and we are not the greatest market. And so here's what you find, that in this world, here's what's happened to the church. The church was just doing its thing. We were raising our kids. We assumed control. We assumed influence. We assumed dominance. And then all of a sudden, like like on a dime, it feels like we were shook up, and now we have gone the complete opposite direction, and we are cultural exiles. Christians felt like they were in control, and now we're just realizing that we're not at all. So what, what happened? How did this happen? Through a slow moral fade. There's this a uh, philosophy called the Overton Window. I really actually appreciate it because it talks about how ideas go from unthinkable to acceptable and sensible and ultimately policy. Um, you remember back in the 90s, Marilyn Manson was seen as unthinkable and vile, and now he's just no big deal. Like Nobody even thinks twice about his antics and what he does. What happened in the American conscience and, and culture where what once shocked us now is just normal, and if not normal, applauded and celebrated. And so Overton's window goes like this. First, something, uh, somebody does something unthinkable. And then it becomes radical. Then it becomes acceptable. Then it becomes sensible. Then it becomes popular. Catch this. Then it becomes policy. And then ultimately, it becomes history. And this is a story about how ideas in a cultural context um, where the cultural majority are not believers, how these ideas go from unthinkable ultimately to policy. And this is where these ideas become history. And what we've seen in American life is that almost every single value that Americans once held is now um, considered to be, we'll say, un-American. And so in the church in America, everybody's being shook up. People don't know what to do. They're trying to figure out what does this mean for my kids? What does it mean for my grandkids? What does it mean for public education? What does it mean for my neighbors? What does it mean for the whole gamut of what's happening around me? And a lot of Christians are just really confused. Enter the book Daniel. Daniel, um, though he did not find himself uh, in slow fade to cultural exile, he found himself taken as a slave and then immediately found himself in cultural exile. He found himself surrounded and immersed in a culture whose values, attitudes, beliefs, religion, gods, systems 
were not just in disagreement, but contradicted and opposed his. He found himself on a dime in a very different place. He woke up one day, a a smart, intelligent Jewish boy, and then a month or two later found himself um, in chains 900 miles to the east in a foreign nation called Babylon. Well, the book actually picks up on this catastrophic event in the history of Israel called the Babylonian exile. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, we find him introduced in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar II was the king of the Babylonian empire. He was their ruler. He was their god. Um, This is an empire that slowly took over much of the known world. It became one of the greatest worldwide um, empires the world had ever known. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was arrogant, strategic, powerful, and very pagan. He is one of the most pompous men. In fact, as you read through the book of Daniel, he's going to come up regularly. And almost every time he does, this is a wonderful, wonderful aspect of the book of Daniel. Jesus asserts his dominion and authority over Nebuchadnezzar in powerful, public, and unforgettable ways. Uh, If you want to be encouraged as a cultural exile, the book of Daniel is going to call out your reality. And then it's going to say this, Jesus is the king over kings and kingdoms, and he wins. So there's going to be some negative things in this sermon in terms of the reality, but ultimately we're going to land here. You serve a God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that despite what happens in this exile, he is the victor and the champion, and he is up to something way bigger than what we're seeing right here and right now. And so what we find is in about 607 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies began to take over Jerusalem. Uh, God made a promise to the Israelites. If you don't obey my law, I will remove you from your land and I will take you to a foreign land where you do not speak their language and they worship different gods. They will take away everything you have. So the people of God knew this, right? If you abandon Yahweh, I will send you into exile. I will take you away from your homeland and I will put you in a place that is not your home. And so about 605 BC is where the book of Daniel picks up, the third year of the reign of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And what's going to happen is this book is going to follow Daniel all the way through the Babylonian rule. Ultimately, the Babylonians are going to be taken over by the Persians. And Daniel is still going to be in an influential position. And he's still going to write this book um, throughout this entire 70-year period when Israel is in uh, exile. Uh, when we get to the language of this book, most of the Old Testament, you may not know this, but it's written in one language except for this book and a few other small places in the Old Testament. Um, Here, this book is written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And so if you look at your, uh, the book of Daniel, um, chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter two, verse four, they're written in Hebrew. And then chapter two, verse five picks up. And for a number of chapters, all the way to the end of chapter five, it's written in Aramaic. And then chapter six through 12, they, uh, Daniel picks up the language of, of Hebrew again. This is not an accident. Um, this is because Daniel was writing these words, not just for God's people, but for those who were not God's people. They called them Gentiles or the Babylonians at the time. And so what he does is he actually takes this portion of scripture that is about prophecy and hope, and he writes it for the Jewish people. But then he takes this portion of scripture where God basically humiliates um, Nebuchadnezzar and the foreign gods, and he puts it into the language, the 
common language, uh, the empire language of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Assyrians. Um, uh, Aramaic was the common, we'll just say trade language that these nationalities would use. And so when Daniel chose Aramaic, he was choosing a language that people would be able to read that were outside of God's people. And he was giving them the word of God at this time that reminded them there is a king above your king and above your gods, and he will win and he will rule. It's pretty cool. Uh, the reason this book isn't written, two, reads, two reasons. Number one is to give exiles hope. If you get to the end of the book of Daniel and you feel hopeless and you feel like you don't know if Jesus has this thing under control, I have not done my job or you have slept through these sermons. Both are plausible. Number two, and this is where we'll pick up next week, is that Daniel and this whole experience of exile is going to show us how to bless our cities when we are the cultural exiles. It is going to show us what does it mean to be strong and courageous, but not a big fat jerk. It's going to teach us that tension of how do I be wise and savvy and live under the authority of God's word and yet not unnecessarily um, leave the other culture with a bad taste in their mouth to me, uh, towards me. And so this is actually a really beautiful book. It's a beautiful opportunity for us to figure out, okay, here's our new reality. Um, what does Jesus want to say to us and what do we do in this? How do we become Daniels in this experience? And the author is, of course... Daniel, young, smart, capable, privileged, godly. Here's my favorite part. Probably about 15 years old when taken into exile. One of the things that if you are a teenager and you're listening to this, uh, and you, you are able, you are more than capable to stand for the sake of Jesus Christ with wisdom and grace and truth, to not bend and buckle like Daniel did. This is a young man who stands for all young people to be reminded that you, you can live for Jesus, even if you are a cultural exile, uh, and here's how to do it. Daniel is so inspiring. And let me just say this. If Daniel can do it, adults can do it, right? Amenville Church, right? You're like, I don't know about that. Number one in your notes, am I really, really in exile? Uh, Daniel chapter one, verse one. I want you to imagine a foreign nation, an evil foreign nation who does not share your values, attitudes, beliefs. I was tempted to offer the option for you to scream it out, but I'll just, I'll give you the one that comes to mind, Canada. So, um, (laughs) I want you to imagine, um, that, uh, this evil quasi juggernaut, um, one day, it attacks America. I'm sorry, I have, there's so many Canadians in the room and I'm looking at you, I'm like, um, They come in and they, they attack the White House and they kill our president. They take our Congress and they put them in slaves and they make them walk all the way north to, what is the capital of Canada, by the way? I didn't really get an answer last service. Ottawa? Never heard of it. So they go all the way... <laughs> They make them walk all the way north to Ottawa, Ottawa, and uh, humiliate them and ruin them, destroy their homes, destroy their life, take their jobs. Not only that, but before they take them, they kill their children. They take their pregnant wives and cut their stomachs open and slaughter their babies, dash their kids against rocks, you name it, violate their women. The list goes on and on and on, all in the name of making sure that you, without a shadow of a doubt, never forget who is in charge. 
This is MO, by the way, right? The Bible gets very violent. And the reason it's violent is because it was a different world in those places than what we experience here in America. In Psalm 137, um, verse 8, the psalmist is writing in Babylon, uh, lamenting over their experience that they just had. It says this, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. And what have you done to them? Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. You can start to understand just a small, just a small glimpse of the pain and the heartache and the trauma of having everything that you have ever known and loved dismantled, killed, taken away from you, and then being personally shipped 900 miles to the east in chains over months and months and months to a foreign land with different landscape and different trees and different ground and different food and different cultures and different religions. And it's not just different, but it exists to obliterate your identity. It exists to dismantle everything you knew you were and to seduce you with something much, much more compelling. We get to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. Who gave Israel into exile? Yahweh, God, the Lord, You have to get this to understand the flow of this book. This is discipline against Israel for their rebellion against God. Then he says this, and he, uh, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim into into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. At this point, when you're reading it, you might be thinking, Daniel, why are you so concerned about vessels? Like, shouldn't you be more concerned about the people? And this becomes very, very important because two things are being communicated here. Number one, ancient battles were not just battles from one army to another or a king against a king. Ancient battles were a battle between a god and the gods. They were a battle between a country's deities. And so here's what is really interesting is that Yahweh is willing to publicly lose so that he can do something bigger than just this exile. Yahweh always plays the long game. He is willing to take a temporary loss for a long-term gain. And so what we have here is that first and foremost, that God um, is, is, is clearly putting himself into a position where all of the foreign nations could look at Israelites and say, where is your God? Your God lost, your God is defeated. And just to prove that, we are going to obliterate in 576 BC, we are going to obliterate the entire temple, the very place where God dwelled. We will take all of the utensils, we'll take them out, we'll kill your priests. We will make sure that everything that you hung on to and you believed was powerful, we will dismantle destroy it. And we will show you that Bel and our gods are stronger and your God is a loser. And we will mock you and we will humiliate you to keep you in check. This is what exile was. This is what exile sought to do for them. The second thing that God is communicating to the people is this. I would rather pagan priests who don't know any better handle the vessels of my sanctuary, these holy things that I've set apart, than the Jewish priests who knew better and did the same, if not worse, evil than the pagans. Listen to Jeremiah twenty three eleven. Both the prophet and the priest are ungodly, even in my house, the temple. I have found their evil, declares the Lord. 
the Lord was making a public declaration to the people of God that he would reject them and their ministry and he would give them into exile for 70 years and he would rather his vessels be in Babylon than under the leadership of the Jewish evil priests. Now there is, there is one interesting weird thing about Babylonian exile that you have to understand here. Uh, it's, it's almost a little confusing because we um, transfer over modern notions of slavery to this. Um, they were brought over by force. Um, they would um, assimilate them, indoctrinate them, dismantle their culture. But then, then it became uh, sort of like this. If you guys are good boys and girls, we'll leave you alone. Do what you want. Build houses, get jobs, do your thing. If you act like us and you assimilate into the culture, we will leave you alone. And, and so what's interesting is that Babylon, even though they took Israel by force, very quickly just kind of laid off, actually. They did all of these initial destructive, terrible things to them, and then basically said, be a good boy, be a good, good girl, build homes, get jobs, and we'll leave you alone. It's a very weird thing. You'd expect that they would continually oppress them, but it seems while they were in the land that the oppression did not go on and on as hard as it was when they, when they took them over and took them as slaves and brought them over. <clears throat> there are two kinds of power we like to talk about, hard power and soft power. Um, hard power um, basically is what countries like Canada would do. Um, it would be like socialism and communism. Um, I'm kidding, that was not Cam- Canada. That was not a Canadian joke, I'm sorry. Uh, hard power would be communism. It basically says this, uh, conform or die. It demands conformity at all costs. Universities, by the way, are hard power. If you go into a university and you do not conform to the culture and the ethos and the values, attitudes, beliefs, and systems, then you're done. They will mock you and ridicule you. It's a new reality that those of us who went to college 10 years and before, um, even five years and before, did not experience. Soft power is different. Babylon took them with hard power and won them with soft power. Soft power is like downtown Chicago. Um, there's a whole culture, it doesn't matter how old you are, there's a whole culture of do what you want, no rules, no judgment. It lures you in, it seduces you, it calls out all the heart idols you have and says this, lavish yourself, pleasure yourself, enjoy yourself, indulge in whatever you want, and no one will judge you. And if someone does judge you, we'll take care of them. It is autonomy, it is pleasure, it is seductive. And at the end of the day, if you understand anything about Babylon, Babylon is a seductress. That is what she is. By God's grace, America is kind to the church. They have not forced us into exile. It has been a slow cultural experience. But you need to catch this. With soft power, the American pop culture machine wants to seduce you, wants to dismantle you, wants to take the things that are very important to you and make them not important, ultimately with the goal of winning winning you to their values, attitudes, and beliefs. This is the new reality. They are in charge. They're the primary influencers of everything in media. They're the primary influencers of news. Their objective is to dismantle. And the church needs to know, can we make it through this? Is this possible? And Daniel screams off the pages and basically says, yes, It might be hard, you might be minority, but it is possible, and it is joyful, and it is worth it. I want you to stick through this. Number two in your notes, am I really living in Babylon? Uh, Turn with me to Psalm chapter 137. I just quoted it earlier, but I want you to go there. We're going to read a few verses from it. Psalm 137, we'll start in verse 1. 
Uh, this is a song, again, written after the people have been brought. I want you to imagine the mother who just lost her children, the mother who lost her husband. She has been traveling for 900 miles in chains. She has been mocked. She has been abused. She lands on the shore as they stop for a drink of water. And she writes this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. When they're coming to this new, new place, this beautiful city that would offer them whatever they wanted, but it was 100% the opposite of everything they came from. And when they remember Zion, they remember their family and their children and their homes and their jobs and their temple and their faith and the priests and their life and their families and their joy and their food and all of it is gone. And she sits and she weeps. Babylon literally means confusion. Babylon is devoted to sorcery, pleasure, money, success, moral freedom, It is a seductress. Psalm 137 goes on and says this, On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, a musical instrument reserved for times of celebration. For there are captors required of us songs. Sing, Jew, sing us one of your old songs. And they would make fun of them. And our tormentors, mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. As you look at that, I want to share with you the experience of being in exile in Babylon. Number one is profound grief such as the majority of us in this room could never imagine. Deep hopelessness in verse 2. Mockery in verse 3. Even just a struggle to worship in verse 4. Hopeless longing in verses 5 and 6. So Village Church, is this what God desires for cultural exiles who trust in Jesus Christ? This exile for the Israelites was catastrophic and devastating. And if you look around the world, most of the world is going to look at the exile the church is in, what's happening to the global church, and the amount of people being executed, the amount of children being executed in the name of Jesus Christ because your mom and dad won't recant. Like they're looking at the world and they're basically saying, um, these people are losers. These people should be um, sad. They should be hopeless. We are trying to dismantle all of their identity and they should have nothing to live for. They should just concede. And yet the church global, when you leave the lethargic American church, here's what you find. Our experience in cultural exiles, we go from grief to joy, from hopelessness to hope, from mockery to endurance, from struggle to worship. How someone can worship the moment before they're executed makes no sense to anybody else but somebody who's trusted in Jesus Christ. There's something fundamentally different about how spirit-filled Christians endure cultural exile. The Jews wept and wailed. We live with hope and courage and strength and grace and truth. They had hopeless longing, and we are waiting in joyful, certain expectation for Jesus, the just one, to come back and judge the living and the dead. 
Uh, the New Testament picks up the, the context, the terminology of Babylon. And in the New Testament, Babylon actually represents something bigger than this city, than this nation, than this empire. Babylon represents a world power or any world power who opposes God and seduces his people. It, so in the first century, when the book of Revelation was written, pop quiz, uh, who did Babylon represent? Rome. Say Rome. Okay, good. So smart. Uh, Rome. Uh, and now Babylon represents any culture, any nation, any government that opposes God and opposes his people. Generally, Western culture uh, is the emerging, we'll say, Babylon. If the New Testament writers could write to us today, they would probably refer to the pop culture machine of American Western culture as Babylonian in its fundamental intent. I'm going to read to you a few of these passages so you can kind of get your head around how the New Testament views them. And this also gives you a glimpse into Daniel's experience and the Israelites' experience in exile in Babylon. Here's what it says. Fallen, fallen, 14.8, Revelation. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's interesting because she doesn't just invite, she forces. Revelation 17.5. Babylon the great. She is the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations powerful. Revelation 18.2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Let me just be clear. The church has not been, by and large, adequately equipped to deal with the cultural exile we've just found ourselves in. It is, by and large, not. Christian after Christian is trying to grope their way through this new reality, stumbling and falling, trying to figure out what does it mean to be a neighbor to somebody who literally stands for 100% of the opposite of everything I believe? How do I engage uh, social media pages where, uh, I don't know, there are a whole bunch of moms from a certain community and they are articulating values that you don't believe in, but if you articulate your values, you get in trouble and you all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah? How do you do that with grace and yet truth? How do you make a difference and not make a point? How do you engage your family, holidays, neighbors? How do you engage movies like Beauty and the Beast and figure out how do I handle some of these issues that are coming out? I didn't see that coming. Do I take my kids? Do I not? Do I train them? How do I view this whole new reality? And so what's happened is we feel like we've been spun around in circles and we're like, what do I do? What do I do? How do I live in cultural exile? And Daniel finds himself in the exact same circumstance. I want to just give you one big piece of hope. At the end of the Bible, Babylon has fallen. Jesus wins. He is victorious. So whatever, whatever it means now, we're going to figure this out. We're going to teach. We're going to train. We're going to encourage. We're going to build each other up so that we can be Daniels who aren't just jerks, but we are loving and kind and gracious and servant-hearted. Uh, we bless our city. Our city tangibly feels the presence of our community and of our individuals and of this church, right? That's what we want to be. But one day Babylon is going to lose and it's going to lose bad. And Jesus is going to win and you're going to be a victor. And as you read the book of Daniel, if you miss all of that, if you miss the supremacy of Jesus Christ over kings and kingdoms, you will miss the whole point of the book. The book identifies the reality of cultural exile. The whole while Jesus is lingering as the authoritative king who humiliates at the end of the day kings and kingdoms who don't acquiesce to his authority and his rule. I love this book. I hope it encourages you as much as it has me already. 
We go to point number three in your notes. Could I really be like Daniel? It's easy to be a chameleon, right? I act like a Christian when I'm with Christians. I act like non-Christians when I'm with non-Christians. I am whoever they want me to be. Um, You will buckle eventually if you're a chameleon. The new reality is that chameleons get eaten alive. Okay? There is a new reality here that you can't walk that path for very much longer. Maybe you're lucky and you are a part of a little subculture that's permitting it, but that too will end. The chameleon mindset is going to have to die, and you will either have to be for Jesus Christ or against him. We've seen what's happened in two years. I don't know what will happen in the next two to four years. I have no idea, but here's what I know. Culture is moving quickly, and we have to be um, preparing ourselves, training ourselves to be like Daniel's, courageous and yet gracious and loving and kind. May nobody say to us that we are jerks. They may not like our ideas, but may they not say that we we ourselves are. Let's look at verse three. Then the king commanded Esphenaz, the chief eunuch. Anyone want that job? No? Good. To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So what does this list tell you about Babylon's values? What are some things you think it finds important? I dare you say something. Who's got the guts? Canadians? They're one of the best. They value the best. They value youth. Any of you 50 and older trying to find a job? What are you running into? Remind you of anyone? Beauty, knowledge, wisdom, status, power. It's interesting. It's like such an obsession with the external. It's just obsessed with it. And you start to see already when they come into this new culture, there's a whole new set of values. Did you know the Israelites loved and valued their older men and women? They saw age as an asset, not as a liability. And so you already see this just worldly, this worldly set of values coming through in this nation. But here's one of the things that uh, I think you need to get is that Daniel, although you weren't forced into exile, you both found yourself into exile. And there are some things that majority cultures will do. You've got to get your head around these three things. Number one, uh, every majority culture um, seeks to give you an identity. They always have an identity to assign you. So here's what you know. The, the, the cultural elites, the cultural majority, do not, are not um, content to let you be you. Until you conform to them, they will not stop. It is relentless. And so we even look in the, in the next few verses. Here's what we see in verse 6, um, that we have these three Jewish young men, probably 15 years old, Dan, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And one of the first things that they do is they give them a new name. And in scripture, you know this, when you get a new name, it is a new identity. You are no longer the old person, you are the new person. So he gives them a new name. And here's what the names mean. Daniel, the Jewish name is, God is my judge. They give him a new name, Belshazzar, which means Bel will protect. Substituting the gods. I love this, that Daniel's name uh, means God is my judge. You're reminded that every single time Daniel comes up, he is living before, not Nebuchadnezzar, not the Persian Empire. He is living underneath, ultimately, the authority of the king of kings who will judge. Hananiah means Yahweh 
is gracious. Every time you said Hananiah's name, he was reminded that his God is gracious. They give him a new name, Shadrach, which means inspired of Aku. Mishael um, means uh, one who is God's. He became Meshach, which means who is like Aku. Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. And Abednego means servant of the shining one, Nebo. Then interesting, everywhere they go from this point on, they would be identified by new false foreign gods, and this would be their new identity. What's interesting is Daniel pens the book. Throughout the rest of this book, you find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You find the Babylonian names. But every time Daniel mentions himself, what does he call himself? By and large, Daniel. God judges. It is God is my, who is my judge. The dominant culture has an identity to assign you, but one of the things Daniel fights for is his identity, and it starts with his name and who he is and where he comes from. Uh, number two, not only is the culture want to assign you an identity, the dominant culture wants to indoctrinate you. This is not paranoia. This is actually what cultures do. Um, I'd like to prove this to you. Every single home, every single family, you have your own culture. Uh, moms and dads, what do you want to do with your children? Say, indoctrinate them indoctrinate them, right? You want them to inherit and to share your values, attitudes, beliefs, perspectives on the world. Like we can look at dominant cultures and say, oh, they're so mean. Every family does it. The church does it. Anybody who is in control values their culture and wants that culture to be replicated and handed down to the next generation. What we're experiencing with Christians is there's competing cultures. There's the culture of my home and my church, and then there's the culture I live in every single day, six days of the week. There's the culture of my school and my friends and online, and then there's this culture, and one of these cultures is going to win, and the dominant culture wants to indoctrinate, wants to dismantle all of the fundamental aspects of identity, reframe the person and teach them what is true and right and good. So when you look at your kids and you look at your grandkids, this is a battle for indoctrination. It truly is. It truly is. Here's your challenge. What Babylon offers your children is whatever they want without judgment. And what you offer your kids is life and joy, health, peace, and eternity. The problem, the problem is sometimes Babylon is so tangible here and now and it seduces and this is its very, very nature. It's very hard. It's very challenging. But the third thing that we find here is that the dominant culture does not tolerate disagreement. The dominant culture has threats that it perceives as dangerous and scary. So for Daniel, what was the threat? The threat was if you don't conform, you will stand before the king And the king has a reputation for killing anybody who opposes him in some very scary ways. This was supposed to be a threat for Daniel, but Daniel played the long game. Daniel, whose name is God is my judge, lived under the authority of a greater king. Sure, you can kill me, but I'm not going to have to face you for all of eternity. Daniel had perspective. Daniel had the long game in in his mind. I want to to close with this, and I want to ask the question, why on earth would God do this, Um, especially to the church? But for Israel, here's the answer. Um, He promised them that if you forsake me and abandon my law, I will discipline you. I will discipline you for 70 years, and then I will take you back home. And if you will obey me, I will rebuild this land. Every parent understands discipline. Now, God made it clear what would happen to them if they disobeyed. And who chose the disobeying, God or Israel? Say, Israel, please. Israel did. So we see why God did it for Israel. God is up to something 
bigger than Israel's just current happiness today. He's playing the long game with this nation. But for the church, I believe God is up to something very, very, very different. Uh, He's up to three things. Number one, God allowed this to purify us. Christians get lazy when things are easy. Can somebody give me an amen on that one? Like, really? All of us, me, everybody. Like, it's getting to a point when laziness is not really going to work anymore. It's getting to a point where the divide is getting bigger and thicker and harder, right? It's getting really, really difficult to just kind of tread and be a chameleon and live on both sides, right? So what's happening is that um, this cultural exile is exposing everybody. People are coming into church. People are leaving church. People aren't staying because they see to follow Jesus means to be a cultural exile. Some people, they come in from the world and they've seen it's idiocy and it's lunacy. And they're like, look, Jesus makes sense. I would rather be a cultural exile here and have hope for eternity than to live in this insanity over here. But this is the, this is the reality that this cultural exile, you may look at it as, oh no, I, I, you know, I'll be honest, the last couple of years, um, I've become more and more protective of our church and my children. But I tell you, I have not lost hope because what I've seen is God's people getting sharper, smarter, wiser, more on the ball, more prayerful, more interested in scripture and the word of God. There has been a cultural shift in the church, I believe for the better. And the more culture presses on the local church, the better it will be for the local church because we have lived fat and large for too long and we become really lazy and apathetic. And God's like, you know what? The worldwide church is doing pretty darn good under persecution. Maybe it's good for the American church just to like have a little pressure put on them. Maybe the pressure will go away and this is just like a little wake-up call for America. Maybe it won't. I can't tell you the future. I'm not a prophet. But I do know this, that God is purifying the church. And in seasons of exile, the lukewarm never, ever make it. They just don't. Number two, he wants to grow us. Where is the church growing globally? Everywhere they're in exile, Right? The church isn't growing in Europe. The church isn't growing in all of these places where it had the dominant control and influence. The church grows like a weed in exile. So if I'm God and I want to grow the church, am I going to make them fat, happy, and healthy? No, I'm going to take stuff away. I'm going to put them in the minority and I'm going to watch them grow like weeds because the pressure doesn't just expose and purify. It actually deepens us and it makes us hardier and more gritty and more compassionate and more truthful and more clear. And it exposes everybody in the process. One of the things I want you to see is, is we uh, probably have to grieve what used to be in America. Uh, As you look to the future, don't grieve because God is doing really amazing things in this cultural pressure and the saints are rising up and this is a new time for the church. Even though we might not be in the cultural majority, um, the church has the opportunity to grow by leaps and bounds because one by one, as people give themselves over to the world and its pleasures, it always fails them and yet Jesus satisfies deeply and personally. Finally, We're going to look at this next week, so I'll just tell it to you, and I'll leave you with a little carrot and bated breath. God puts us into exile to bless our cities, to bless our communities. I'll I'll, I'll be honest, when it's easy, when everything's fun and nice, local outreach isn't that pressing. But when there's pressure, the demand on us to be Christians as a church and individuals, it changes And we are standing on an opportunity to bless our city and our communities and our neighborhoods and our neighbors in profound ways. It doesn't matter if they agree with us or not. We want to be a bright, shining light that truly, if Village Church of Barlett and Village Church East left their communities, people would be so sad.
because we brought such blessing to this community in measurable ways. It's why we do things like Acons. People have asked, why do you do an Acon? It's really unspiritual. If we get to just love and bless our city and bring kids in and just say, we love you unconditionally, we're not going to preach a sermon at you. We're just going to love you and let you know you're valuable to us. You are important. You are, you are made in God's image. We just, we just want to bless you. It speaks more volumes in this new cultural context than you could possibly imagine. It speaks volumes when people with, I don't know, teal shirts or green shirts, whatever they are, smile and are kind and are genuine. It speaks volumes when we do things like adopt our little elementary. It speaks volumes when you do things for your neighbors. Our goal is to rise up and be a blessing. We're going to talk about that next week. So if you're interested in figuring out how do I, how do I be a Daniel in this place, in this time, in this community, in my neighborhood, come next week. We're going to go deeper into that. Uh, this time we're going to celebrate communion because uh, above all of this, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, you're just going to die. And you will be separated from God forever and ever and ever. But God's people, first and foremost, they trust in Jesus. That's where it starts. You can never, ever be a part of God's family. You can never be a part of this thing, truly this thing called the church, until you have personally trusted in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to celebrate in communion in just a moment. So let's pray together as we get ready for that. Father, I look at Daniel. I'm so grateful for him that you would included this book. I'm so thankful for his um, life from 15 um, on. Every opportunity to buckle under the pressure, but you, you gave him power to overcome. You reminded of him of his name, that you are his judge, and you are good, and you are gracious to those who are yours. And God, I thank you that the way we are saved from Daniel to today is through faith. It's not by being good. And I thank you for Jesus and what he did on the cross. And God, I pray, Lord, if there is anyone in this room who is just pulled and tugged in their heart that this world is not for them, God, I pray that you would show them that the only way to a new world where you are, the only way to salvation, the only way to forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. God, I pray you would reveal that and make that so abundantly clear. You are the God who saves, even though we are in exile. You are the God who saves. And you are the God who judges and you are just and you are good and you are right. And under the authority of Jesus, all things will be made right one day. And so until that day we wait, would you give us the courage and the grace, the truth and the kindness, the love and the mercy to live as cultural exiles in this time and this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.